This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. A feature of the public debate around immigration in this country in the last six months has focused on the role of Rwanda, a country in Central Africa with which the British government claims to have an agreement to send illegal migrants from here to there. Of course, no migrant has yet successfully been sent there. But what is Rwanda actually like? Is it a safe place for refugees to make new lives? To help us understand more about this interesting and complex country, I'm delighted to be joined by Anjan Sundaram. Now, he's an expert on Central Africa and the author of the upcoming book, Breakup, an account of his journalistic exploits in Central Africa. Anjan, welcome. Thank you, Arthur. Pleasure to be here. Let's talk a bit about Rwanda. Most people know, of course, the the history of the terrible genocide that happened there. But since that genocide, Rwanda has become a very forceful and effective player in its region and and in the wider stage. Can can you perhaps help our listeners understand a bit of that history and that transition that Rwanda has been through? Absolutely. So in 1994, there was a genocide of the ethnic Tutsi population, according to the United Nations, about uh, 800,000 Tutsis were killed in just three months. Since then, the, the, the official narrative of Rwanda is that Rwanda has risen from the ashes. It's a success story. But there's a dark side behind that official narrative, official propaganda. And in reality, Rwanda attributes a lot of its success to really, really strong dictatorship, an authoritarian government that con- controls the country to the minutest level. So the, the entire country is divided into little villages. Each village is of, a, of about 100 families. The central government in Rwanda controls what's happening in each village on a day-to-day basis. Information passes from each village to the center and back. And, uh, you know, there are informers. I lived in Rwanda for about five years. And everywhere I went, my movements were tracked. Uh, I was training a, a group of journalists there. Their reports, their movements, their families were monitored. So it's, it's a surveillance state of the highest degree. You mentioned dictatorship. And of course, the heart of that is the dictator himself, Paul Kagame. He's a fascinating figure and has played a significant role uh, in the history of East Africa in Uganda, Rwanda and the Congo. Is it worth just saying a little bit about where he fits into all of this? Sure. So Kagame grew up in exile after a previous round of killings of his ethnic Tutsi group. He grew up in exile in Uganda. And in 1990, he mobilized an army uh, of rebels and invaded Rwanda. And that, that invasion triggered the instability in Rwanda that eventually led to the genocide in 1994, uh, genocide that occurred during a war of 
Kagame calls it a war of liberation, that Kagame won and then took over, took over power in Rwanda. And since 1994, Kagame has effectively ruled over Rwanda. So that's, you know, 30 years. He's cast himself not only as the savior of Rwanda from the genocide, but he's also cast himself as a, as a global post-colonial leader. And this goes some way to explaining why he's so admired by the West and around the world. He's cast himself as a leader who, you know, is able to criticize the West for its failings, including during the genocide. When the genocide occurred in Rwanda, the West did very little to intervene. The reality is Kagame himself did very little to intervene, but he uses the, the inaction by the West to criticize Western failings, criticize colonial crimes of the West in the past. And a lot of people around the world see him as an outspoken leader, a post-colonial leader that they've been hungry for for quite a while. And of which, you know, around the world, you see some leaders like him emerging. But Kagame is certainly a very eloquent exponent of that post-colonial hunger for justice, at least to speak up about some of the crimes of the West that aren't spoken about uh, generally in mainstream Western media. As you say, he's been very successful, hasn't he, in getting some Western countries, at least, to support him with aid, with uh, you know political support. Uh, for example, Rwanda has now joined the Commonwealth, which traditionally was an organisation of former British colonies, even though Rwanda doesn't have that history with Britain. He's been a, a hugely successful advocate for the brand of Rwanda. Absolutely. 50% of the Rwandan budget is financed by Western aid. And what's incredible is that this aid keeps coming in, despite credible evidence, year after year, of human rights violations. Just this year, uh, a prominent Kagame critic was killed, you know, uh, quote unquote, in a car accident. And this has happened so often and so many times to Kagame's critics. They've disappeared, had to flee the country, just turned up dead. And if you go further back after the genocide, there's credible evidence you know, from a UN investigation that Kagame's forces massacred possibly hundreds of thousands of people. The UN termed it possible acts of genocide by Kagame himself, you know, the supposed savior uh, of Rwanda during the genocide, is himself accused of committing acts of genocide. So despite all these credible allegations of serious crimes against him, the West still sends enormous amounts of aid uh, to the point that Rwanda is dependent on Western support, even as Kagame criticizes the West. That This is the paradox. And Kagame has earned this support very cleverly. Also, you know, from, from what you say, he's cast himself as a reliable partner of the West, most notably in security matters. So Rwandan peacekeepers are deployed across the continent in Africa, in Mozambique, in the Central African Republic, to help the United Nations, the African Union, and other international bodies keep the peace in those countries. And these are areas where, these are countries and places where the West is reluctant to risk its own soldiers, and Rwanda willingly volunteers its troops. And so the West is very grateful for that. You mentioned there, Anjan, the human rights uh, issues. And of course, this really is at the heart of this discussion. Uh, Let's say a bit more about that, because we're not talking about perhaps people being just merely mistreated by police forces or people, uh, you know, perhaps being arrested and detained for, for speaking out of turn. We're talking about killings, aren't we? We're talking about 
targeted assassinations. We're talking about people even being hunted down overseas who oppose uh, Kagame. A hundred percent. I lived in Rwanda for five years and I taught a class of about a dozen journalists who were taken out by Kagame's government one by one. One of my colleagues was shot dead on the day he criticized President Kagame. Others were imprisoned after they criticized his government. Uh, I helped a couple flee the country because their lives were in danger after credible threats from the Rwandan government. And at the back of my book, which is called uh, about Rwanda, which is called Bad News, Last Journalists in a Dictatorship, I list over 70 Rwandan journalists who disappeared, were forced to flee the country, were imprisoned, turned up dead uh, after criticizing President Kagame. So this is a systematic campaign of human rights violations, of, you know, silencing that Kagame has waged on his own population, on Rwandan journalists, on academics, on politicians, you name it. Uh, He's gone after anyone in the country who dares to oppose him even uh, and criticize his policies and criticizes many abuses of power. So yes, there have been multiple, you know, deaths, killings, targeted assassinations. And what distinguishes Rwanda is its willingness to continue that campaign, wage that campaign abroad in in countries that are supposed to be free, like the United Kingdom, like Canada and the US. People who have criticized Kagame have received death threats. A Kagame critic received a letter from Scotland Yard in the UK, uh, warning him that his life was in imminent danger from the Rwandan government, and that Scotland Yard could do very little to protect him. When I spoke about my book, Bad News, at Chatham House in London, uh, Scotland Yard came up to me and put me on their counterterrorism hotline. So they gave me a number that I would dial and said, I don't even have to explain. They know how the Rwandan government operates. Uh, all I had to do was dial the number and they would come and get me, quote unquote, uh, so that I would be safe. And the same thing happened in the US. NYPD counterterrorism showed up to one of my talks uh, with armed personnel to protect me while I was speaking at the Committee to Protect Journalists about Rwanda's human rights crimes. These human rights crimes are closely tied to the surveillance state that is Rwanda and, you know, to the fact that his police are monitoring every citizen. If you go into Rwanda and ask people what they think of Kagame, what they think of his policies, they're very aware that every word they say is being listened to and that they have to be very, very careful because it's not just killings. You know, people lose bank loans. Their children are expelled from school land that they own is suddenly expropriated. There's a a range of ways in which the Rwandan government can harass and threaten them and make their lives very uncomfortable. When they go up to renew their passports or local, you know, official papers, the authorities suddenly ask them, hey, hey, we heard that you, you know, you were saying things about Kagame, about the government, and they they delay the paperwork. And so there, there are a range of ways in which their lives become so uncomfortable that they know that they shouldn't criticize the government or Kagame. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
let's talk about the refugee programme. If the story ended where we've got to here, it would be an important and interesting story, perhaps one followed by those who are interested in African affairs, interested in foreign affairs. But it has come into the heart of British uh, domestic politics and particularly our immigration policy. As listeners, and, and you, of course, will be well aware, the UK has made a deal with Rwanda to send immigrants, uh, asylum seekers who have, have come to this country, to send them to Rwanda for resettlement. I suppose the first thing I'm intrigued about is why would the Rwandans do this? Particularly, you describe a country where state control is absolute uh, and, and this surveillance state. One would think that the introduction of numbers of people from from all over the world, from different places, whether it's Afghanistan or or Yemen or or, or who knows where, that could be quite uh, troubling for a country that is run with such an iron grip as Rwanda is. So, what's what's your best understanding of why the Rwandans have gone for this project? The thing to understand about President Kagame is that while he wants to use, while he wants to rule his country with an iron fist. He also wants praise, acceptance, adulation from the West. He goes out of his way to go to international conferences like Davos to speak at, you know, Harvard University, Oxford University, where, you know, he receives applause when he speaks about development, his poverty reduction programs, and even his human rights programs, which is incredible. But he, he seeks that. And to partner with the UK government and receive asylum seekers, to receive people who have fled their countries, who have fled dictatorship and the abuse of power and human rights crimes in their country and are seeking refuge in the UK. For the UK to send those asylum seekers now to Rwanda, which is another dictatorship, is a propaganda coup for Kagame at the highest level. He has effectively branded Rwanda as a safe place for people fleeing dictatorship. So how could Rwanda be a dictatorship? This is his propaganda goal in partnering with the UK. There's also money... There's also, you know, a closening of ties with the UK, aid programs and money. Uh, you know, you can expect security uh, partnerships to deepen. So I, he's casting himself as, you know, a unique partner to the West. And the irony is that the UK is willing to send people who are fleeing dictatorships in their own countries and seeking safety. Uh, the UK is willing to send them to another dictatorship. This is now unfolding as this rather unseemly kind of bad faith discussion in the UK domestic politics, where those who are supporters of the government policy, you know, know, typically conservative politicians, they accuse those that criticise Rwanda of perhaps having a racist agenda, perhaps of of being a sort of paternalistic and of a colonialist mindset. Is is there any validity to that? Or, or is that simply a, a bad faith argument? African countries have been portrayed in racist ways in the media and literature. But th- this argument about racism is being abused in this case, because there's so much evidence that Kagame is himself abusing the rights of his own people. In a way, it's it's to mock those the, the Kagame's victims, to assert that it's somehow racist to criticize Kagame. I wrote a piece in The Guardian about this some years ago. Kagame is effectively using past instances of racism against Africans uh, and this argument that you know his critics are racist. He's using these racist arguments, uh, these arguments of racism as a shield to protect himself 
from any criticism abroad, the sad thing is that there's so little effective criticism and effective debate about racism that Kagame is uh, effective. The Tory government in the UK is able to shield Kagame and in itself from criticism of human rights violations. Because let's be clear, I mean, you're sending asylum seekers who are very vulnerable, you're sending them to a dictatorship that is Rwanda. It's very, very likely that their rights are going to be abused in Rwanda, uh, that there's going to be very little monitoring of their freedoms. As is well known, nobody has yet been sent to Rwanda. There are all kinds of legal hurdles because the government's policy may in fact not be legal. But assuming that that uh, someone is sent to Rwanda, someone who has, was an asylum seeker in this country, is there a possibility that in fact somebody who, who has no interest in the domestic politics of Rwanda you don't see that you need to be engaged in political debates relevant to Rwanda, that you could live a relatively trouble-free existence there. Do you think it's possible to make that argument? You can make that argument for expats, expatriate foreigners, mostly Western, who live in Rwanda. You, You know, for expats in Rwanda, you live a life that feels free, and it's very difficult for you to understand that for anyone interacting with anyone who's more vulnerable, be them, be, be it local Rwandans or foreign asylum seekers who have to negotiate with the local authorities for their food, for their kids' educations, uh, have to, you know, integrate into the local systems. For them, it's a very, very different reality, one in which there's almost no freedom. Any British human rights monitor who comes to Rwanda is going to see and feel themselves a very different reality than an asylum seeker who's vulnerable, who's going to have to integrate into the local way of life. And that's going to be very repressive. That's part of Kagame's success. He's created two worlds, one in which expats can live in relative freedom and one in which locals, other Africans, uh, live in, in very re- repressive circumstances. You touched there on on this idea of monitoring, of reporting. Obviously, your work as a journalist has made clear that there is no there is no longer any kind of independent journalism possible in Rwanda. How will those those of us that care about these issues? How will we be able to know what is actually happening to those asylum seekers inside what is a repressive and and very controlled surveillance state? I think the only real way to know is to build a free press in Rwanda. That free press has been destroyed. What the UK government should do is support independent journalism in Rwanda, independent journalists, of which, you know, every so often there there are brave Rwandan journalists who pop up, like John Twali, who was killed or was found dead officially, but highly likely that he was killed earlier this year. There are journalists like him who try to do independent, brave reporting, and they receive very little support. Without that kind of reporting, it's going to be very difficult to know the conditions that asylum seekers face when they go and visit their doctor. When I was living in Rwanda, there were many, many reports that doctors were following official government policy, were not telling their patients, uh, Rwandan patients, of a certain class, of a certain political leaning, you know, the kinds of treatments that they were getting and what was being done to their bodies. Now, there's no way for Rwandans to address 
those accusations, to address those reports or rumors, whatever they are. So they're living in a state of fear. And that will be the condition for asylum seekers. They will face repression, not know the conditions that they are, you know, the, the, the kind of treatment that they're receiving at the hospital, the kind of education their children are receiving, whether they're being monitored, whether they're free. And they will have all these questions and there's nowhere to turn to, to really assess and really find answers. You feel very isolated. You feel very alone because you have all these fears, all these questions, and there's no one to turn to, to address them. No one you can ask because everyone's afraid. Everyone's afraid of speaking. Everyone's afraid of, you know, criticizing the government. This serves to isolate people. Foreign journalists, you, the, the UK could send journalists to Rwanda and to a degree they might, you know, learn about some of the conditions that asylum seekers are facing. But the way that international news is constructed, foreign journalists rely heavily on local reporters. And in a place like Rwanda, local reporters are extremely controlled. And so the information that flows to foreign, foreign news organizations and you know, the international audience is very controlled by Kagame himself. So it's going to be very, very difficult to understand what's happening to asylum seekers. And their rights could be violated and, and very few people would know. And there's very little anyone could do about it. It's just a bad idea to send anybody to a dictatorship. To send asylum seekers to a dictatorship is even worse because they're vulnerable. They've come from extremely stressful situations in their home countries. What they deserve is to live in a country where their rights are protected, uh, where their families are protected, where they're secure, where they're safe. And Rwanda is certainly not that country. This just seems like an example of the UK government trying to outsource its responsibility. And in this case, they've chosen Rwanda, which in the press, in, in the international media, has this seemingly stellar reputation. But in reality, uh, there's plenty of evidence. My book and, you know, other reporting included that shows that Rwanda is extremely repressive and is not a good place to send these asylum seekers. Well, Anjan Sundaram, uh, that I think very clear message is a perfect place to end this discussion. Thank you very much for joining us and for giving us insights into a country that it is by definition hard to get good information about. Thank you. Thank you so much, Arthur. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, listeners, please remember that you can support us on Patreon for just £3 a month, and you'll be supporting us to make shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, and the new series of My Doomsday Watch, which will be coming out in the next month. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.